All right, so back again. We're going to finish up the culture industry today, starting from chapter four all the way up till nine. And this one's going to go in order, unlike the last one. So before we jump into it, a few things to say. You can find this on Podbean or anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. You can uh, contribute to me on Patreon if you happen to have the means to. And I should give a shout out to Boz, James, John, Matt, Nicholas, Sebastian, and Ashley, who have all been extremely helpful in keeping this going. And for those that want to help but that don't have the financial means to, like, share, subscribe, you know, tell your friends. That would be a big help to me. Um, And that's about it. So without further ado, let's just hop right into this here. So starting with chapter four, titled Culture and Administration, Adorno wants to show that culture you know, a thing that was believed to stand separate from administration, the supposed free thing that is, you know, meant to bring out our inner, you know, true human nature, is not so far removed from administration as we might have thought. And the reason he says this is because, he, well, he says that culture exists in the world. Culture exists in our society, ostensibly. And he's like, well, It seems that we live in a pretty ordered society. We live in a pretty rationalized society. And by virtue of that, we live in a pretty administrated society. So we, as people, you know, exist in a world in which we are coded. We are told where to be, you know, when to be there, for how long we are meant to be there. And really the image of like the nine to five worker is is a pretty apt one. That is, this is the person that kind of drags their feet into work for 40 years, at the end of which... If they're lucky to have a pension, they can go home and relax for five years before dying. And it's really a sad, tragic tale, yet it is one that seems to affect so many people. So the administrated world for Adorno has the following characteristics. That is, what it does is assemble, it distributes, it evaluates, and it organizes. Now the distinction between the two, that is the distinction between culture and administration, becomes blurred when we think of the fact that so much of what we take to be culture, let's say it's a museum, art gallery, music festival, all of these things are predicated upon very tight organizational regimens. You know, you have um, bureaus that organize these things, you have departments that organize them, you have boards of people that organize these things. And so we must wonder how much of our idea of culture is filtered through these very processes. And we, we must interrogate this, how much of our, I guess, how much of our humanity that we stake on this culture is then affected by that. So this administrated world probably came about with a certain shift in uh, the economic relations, right? One that moved towards exchange value, which we talked about in the first episode, one that moved from exchange value or from use value into exchange value, which allowed for a certain monopolization to occur. And of course, this is tied to the idea that we presented in the first half uh, that is talking about Max Weber's idea of rationalization. As it turns out, rationalization is very good for profit. That is, is if you are able to make people as efficient as they can be, then you are going to be able to produce the most profit. That is, if you're able to turn them into, to resemble as close to machines as they possibly can, then they are going to be able to produce the most effectively. But what about difference? What about the way that, you know, people are different? The way that, you know, objects are different, the way that, you know, culture is different. Well, Adorno says that there was 
in this shift, that is in this shift into exchange value or an emphasis on exchange value into this shift into late capitalism, what we see is a kind of general homogenization of all of these things that we took to be disparate or separate. Now, they don't change in their outward form. That is phenomenally, they are the same thing. That is, the shoe is not the same as the tennis racket, for example. Yet they are brought together into a general realm of equivalence through their being exchanged on the same market, that is, through their being um, abstracted into a kind of capital value. They have a dollar value associated with it. Now, this dollar value, because it is the end goal of the, you know, the capitalist profit motive, this, this dollar value kind of reduces all things to that, into this kind of abstraction that we just take to be truth. So who are the architects or who are the specialists of this? Well, Adorno says that we turn less towards like academics, towards um, experts in certain fields, and instead we're developing more of a, I guess, um, a, a desire for people that are just good at specializing or are just good at things like managing, just good at organizing, because that is what, you know, subtends all of these movements. So let's say a cultural department was curious about which artworks to put in I don't know, uh, parliament or something, there would need to be someone that had a pretty basic understanding of history. It would not make sense to put um, a Picasso in Congress, for example. I'd, it's a terrible example, I know, but just bear with me. Um, so there has to be some, of course, some remnant, some kind of residue, maybe, and this was presented in the first half, some idea of this aura, the foggy mist of the aura, has to main, be maintained to some extent in order to provide some semblance, a kind of illusion that, you know, we haven't totally lost a connection to, you know, meaning, to culture, to what, uh, you know, Baudrillard calls singularity, or other people call that. Give it some other name. So there is an emphasis still on some kind of like specialization. And of course, these specialists have to be filtered through the educational systems that are their own hierarchical regimens of, of organization and administration. But what people really seek most, or at least when it comes down to the profit motive, is not these specialists or not these experts, but just, you know, good managers who aren't experts in any field. They are only experts in the realm of organization. So while Adorno, you know, has uh, garnered, has accrued this kind of esoteric knowledge, that is of the, the blending together of culture and administration, he also recognizes that, that not everyone looks at it the same way, that culture and administration are still believed to be two separate things. So he says, or asks, why? Why do we have this idea of culture? Why, why does it maintain itself in this world of the culture industry? And he says that maybe it might serve a kind of productive end. So what it does is it kind of exists as the negative to production's positivity. So is there anything positive? Is there anything productive about mass production? Well, the good Marxist would say, no, absolutely not. Capitalism creates needs. It doesn't satisfy them. It doesn't, you know, actually work in favor of use value. So what the system does then is it erects this kind of um, this uh, antagonistic side of it, that is culture, that it can then point to and say, that is where uselessness is, 
that is where vanity is. That is where superfluity is. That is where things that are useless are. That is where things are exchanged. That's where ideas happen, so on and so forth. And then what that does is it retroactively kind of confirms the position of use value within the realm of production, within the realm of administration. But of course, this is just like valicious, like it's not, it doesn't have a, a kind of grounding in a real movement, it is, it is totally artificial. So in Adorno's words, it is precisely in cultures, in his words here, uh, like art, culture like art, it's in, it's in its impractical nature that it manifests a polemic secretly political character, or practical character, sorry, secretly practical character. So interestingly, art here actually has a kind of function. It, ha it does something, and what it does is it affirms the so-called use value, the supposed ostensible use value, of the thing that stands opposed to it. And this is because we work so smoothly within this kind of binary thinking, where if we think that uselessness exists over there, then therefore use usefulness must exist over here. That is in the realm of administration or production or anything like that. Now, historically, this idea called culture didn't actually have a kind of you know, function like that. It just kind of existed within its own uh, domain. And it, you know, of course, didn't always have this title. What we often look back into history and call culture is really just a kind of European concept that we impose onto, you know, others. So take, for example, food culture, a thing that I will say with confidence is, is growing, the idea, the idea of food culture. And so we look at different cultures, there we go. There I go saying it. We'll look at different societies and we associate their food with this idea called culture when in fact for them it was most likely that they were just using what was at their disposal and therefore you know they didn't ascribe the same kind of value to it not to say that it didn't mean a lot to them I'm using value here in a very specific way that is the idea of value associated with a kind of like cultural uh, cultural currency it didn't have that kind of value for them. It was just something that they did. But now, you know, with our kind of current contemporary culture industry, you know, catalyzed, motivated by things like Netflix and, and you know, cooking things, <laughs> cooking channels on YouTube, then we see this kind of emergence of this idea of food culture. So culture then, what at one time was just simply associated with the act of, you know, living, now it has been evacuated of that, or in Adorno's words, it has been emancipated from the actual processes of life. And therefore, it has been dissociated from any kind of possible real uh, social or cultural uh, change, which is why it's so easy for things like uh, large corporations to make a profit off of culture. Culture lends itself really well to profit. Look at... Um, or the production of art, let's say, where you have Spotify that essentially has machines producing quote-unquote art. The music's great. I listen to it. I'm not, I'm not above it. But in many ways, it does call into question the kind of relationship between art and, you know, corporate, uh, you know, blood, bloodthirsty hounds. And so any kind of transgressive potential that we would have once associated with art we would have once associated with culture maybe, is then evacuated of that. And any kind of uh, residual transgression that we locate within it is used productively in the name of the system itself. So you have like, and my example is like punk music that is commodified, for example. 
or like how more broadly like music festivals which are often the site for adorno of like a kind of um carnivalesque display of you know bodily interactions that that come down to a kind of like primal level in in some ways um, how these things are only made possible through the acts of organization through the acts of administration so of course this normative function is not reducible simply to um, like the the movement of, of large-scale corporations that produce products or services or anything like that you know this comes down to the very fabric of our relations with one another where those people that even if they marginally do not fit within the framework, are, you know, going to be institutionalized, are going to be, um, I guess, excommunicated, they're going to be shunned, marginalized, just because they don't fit into the proper uh, kind of framework. Now, Adorno doesn't, isn't saying, like, then it's so possible, it's, or it's very easy to oppose the system, you know, just by being one of these people. The, because these people serve a function of maintaining the system because... It's very artificial, this idea of um, being being different or being uh, strange or being an outcast. You know, this is a commodified thing that just serves the end of, um, I guess, pushing the system forward, keeping it, keeping it alive. But of course, Adorno does leave some room for, I guess, a possible kind of resistance, which he locates or uses himself as a kind of archetypal, typical, archetypical, my God, kind of archetypical figure, where he, being the critical theorist, the person that, that thinks is someone who opposes the system, is someone who actually is a kind of residual autonomous individual. Now, this will be part of a later chapter when he thinks about the distinction between theory and, and practice or praxis, where he says that it is the role of the thinking person, him in this case, to always be critical because he says that for even within the changed totality of problems of the individual obstinately return again. That is, problems might still arise if we do not have this uh, a kind of critical capacity to constantly be uh, challenging the situation we find ourselves in. Now, with that being said, he does close this chapter off on a good note, or I should say a positive note when he says that for the present, within liberal democratic order, the individual still has sufficient freedom within the institution and with its help to make a modest contribution to its correction. Which is, you know, positive, good note, cool, great. Next chapter. Chapter 5, titled Freudian Theory and the Pattern of Fascist Propaganda, which is, I, I really like this chapter, super interesting. Now as far, I'm going to cover the Freud stuff here, but uh, the text that Adorno is making reference to here that is group psychology and the and the id and the ego. Um, I've actually done on this channel, so you can go and find it if you wanted a little bit of extra, um, I guess, knowledge about the text or at least more of an understanding about what goes on in there. If not, you'll be fine. Like you really don't need to. So this chapter looks at the way that fascism was unanticipated by Freud, kind of generally. Now, Adorno fixes his eyes specifically on what went on in Nazi Germany, but also what occurred in the United States in the 40s and 50s with the kind of reactionary movements there. And I will say, what Adorno talks about here is so relevant to what is going on in the United States, it's haunting. It's, and it's really interesting, and for what Freud was writing too, the, uh, the way that Donald Trump makes certain use of, of kind of various tropes is by no means new. Uh, 
And and anyway, so we're, we'll get into that. So Adorno kind of starts by saying that, you know, reactionary fascist agitators are not like rational, right? They, they have these kind of bombastic, you know, statements that they use to try and scapegoat entire groups of people that obviously makes no sense. Yet, you know, it's very easily digestible and therefore is, you know, uh, very appealing. It's very seductive. Um, yeah. And the goal is through their kind of seductive rhetoric is to turn the people into a mass because the mass can be more easily controlled. And this idea of the mass or the group is the kind of subject of Freud's investigation in the group psychology and the analysis of the ego. And in this text broadly, he is concerned, that is Freud is concerned with the way that groups come to be emerge, come to emerge. And he does this in a kind of abstract way. That is, he doesn't consider the specific kind of socioeconomic or political reasons for people to enter groups. He's more curious as to why, as a possibility, a kind of ontological possibility of he, uh, the human, could they enter or why they might enter a group setting. Now, he does this by thinking about the group not in a condemnatory way. That is, not in a kind of... Um, he doesn't renounce the group. Now, the person that does do that is someone by the name of Le Bon. And Le Bon was someone who Freud took aim at because Le Bon thought that as people kind of entered the group, they grew stupider. Where the more irrational someone is, the more likely they are to join a group. And within that group, they are more likely to grow more and more irrational, less and less mindful, less and less critical. Now, Freud looks at that and he's like, okay, well, maybe, but can we really say that people just join groups because they're stupid? Is there not something else going on here? And he, he kind of continues and he meditates on it a bit. He's like, well, the, the, the idea of the group is so anathema to what we know about, you know, in the enlightenment ideals of individuality that it seems like you know, there would, wouldn't really be a desire to join a group, you know, just by virtue of someone, you know, losing a kind of sense of proper critical, a kind of proper, proper critical dominion. So in this way, Adorno kind of draws a parallel between Freud and the demagogues, the kind of fascist demagogues. Not, not, he's not saying that Freud and the demagogues are the same. He's saying that they are both kind of interested in thinking about what galvanizes people together what brings people into a group setting and for freud the answer is kind of simple it's really love that binds people together that is in the act of coming together we do not simply kind of revert to an animalistic you know unenlightened um, kind of state of being we instead embrace something that is kind of innate within us, that is a fundamental desire to be among others. Or in his words, it is to throw off the repression of the unconscious instincts. Now this kind of distinction between Freud and the other approaches, that is the other approaches that think this is just a reversion to a kind of primordial uh, irrationality, Freud or this is the uh, another uh, point that Adorno makes, he says, but something like fascism is markedly new. It, it comes out of the Enlightenment, right? So can we really say that the way that people galvanize, a, you know, into a group in this way, is it really a reversion to something prior? Because it doesn't seem like in nature 
there's anything called fascism. It doesn't really seem in nature like there's anything of the groups, the kinds of groups that we saw emerge in, uh, you know, in Nazi Germany in the early 20th century or, you know, afterwards. So the example of love or the idea that love binds people together is a lot more interesting to Freud and Adorno because it explains how people can galvanize around, you know, an idea or a leader or a cause. And that it is their love for that leader, that cause, that idea that brings them together. So in that way, it can be very rational. It can be very legitimate. And there are, you know, like good groups. That isn't to say that, you know, like Le Bon, you know, that other thinker that Freud was criticizing, that people engaging in kind of mass protest against uh, fascism, as though that is the same thing as rioters after a hockey game. These are demonstrably different things. And it would be wrong to simply say, these are group settings where people just go to lose sight of themselves because life is easier that way. But of course, this love is never really acknowledged. And Adorno is critical to say that like, what bound, bound, what kind of brought fascists together was love. Because there was no love there, right? If there was love, it was purely simulated. And so here enters his own uh, kind of his, his entry into here is his contribution. That is, he considers the way that obedience kind of takes on the role of love. That is how obedience, you know, takes over where love leaves off or when love can't fill in. Now, of course, this all gets kind of uh, intensified. That is the role of obedience when we think of the dynamic between a kind of leader and a group as a dynamic between a, a father or another parental figure and children. Now, this is something that Freud makes the case for. So this is how it works with Freud. For Freud, you, you as a member of the group are an ego. You have an identity, at least you think. And with that identity, you transpose yourself onto the uh, leader. And you say, well, I desire that leader. I want to be like that leader. So they become what is called the ego ideal. They are the ideal version of yourself. So this kind of desire is much more complicated than saying that people are just kind of irrational. Instead, it is saying that people can actually come together in their mutual love for this other person. And that love is only is, is given one way, right? The, the leader doesn't receive as much love from each individual person. They instead receive love from the mass of people that love them. So that kind of group becomes a homogenous entity. It becomes this mass. But what happens if the leader is too far removed? That is if, and, and let's take the example of like a king. A king is so remarkably different from the kind of regular day-to-day -day folk that it's difficult to kind of um, develop the same kind of group identity because there's too much of a removal. It's difficult for people to want to be the king when they know there's absolutely no chance that they, that will happen. So it's in the interest of the leader to be both separate, that is to be somewhat special, you know, to be a kind of ideal person for people to desire and want to project their own identities onto. But they must also be somewhat attached, lest they, you know, they be considered an unattainable ideal and people lose interest. So then you have a kind of a use of common language on the part of fascist on the part of these leaders that is meant to draw a kind of connection with these people. And this is like, 
certainly the case with many world leaders. I mean, they try to speak a certain way so as not to be branded as some like liberal hack or some kind of like intellectual that is just simply uninterested in like the day-to-day lives of hard-working people. And Trump is just the best example of this. Like so many of you know, so many of his um kind of hobbies, his interests, his his tastes resonate with people. Like he loves to eat fast food and that is such a big part of his life and people see that they associate with that how many people or how many times did you see when it you know the election was coming up that people thought they truly believed that trump was going to make them millionaires because he himself was a self-made millionaire supposedly and it's a perfect example of that this it really highlights the extent to which this works and if you're able to mobilize this you that is you were able to make this kind of framework productive you can be extremely effective as a leader so here are some of the un perhaps not unintended intended consequences of this development of a mass or a group is that it ostracizes it creates a distinction between themselves and the out group and if this in-group identity has a kind of tacit understanding that this in-group is comprised of a certain race, for example, then therefore there's going to be a hatred of those people that they do not see themselves in, they do not then um, kind of resonate with, which will obviously leads to you know stereotyping, it leads to discrimination, racism, oppression. Now, Freud was a bit of a positivist. Freud saw... Freud was skeptical of science, but he saw that the move away from religion was a generally was generally a good thing for society. And so he believed this kind of in-group, out-group dynamic, the kind of problems associated with that would be mitigated by this removal, removal away from removal, this movement away from religion, religious dogma. Adorno responds to that by saying that he's not so sure. So he gives the example of Nazi Germany that, in his words, did not recognize any spiritual criterion in regard to who is chosen and who is rejected. Instead, they substituted a pseudo-natural criterion, such as the race, which seems to be inescapable and can therefore be applied even more mercilessly. So while, you know, Freud is welcoming this transition, Adorno is a lot more skeptical, and of course Freud wasn't writing this at the time of uh, Nazi Germany and wasn't necessarily privy to that. Who knows if he would have came up, had the same kind of uh, conclusions. But Adorno is, I think, very correct here in saying that this move to the kind of scientific paradigm, that is, it science is effective because it appears so natural. And I'm not saying science isn't like objective or that it's not like natural, but when really negative things, that is the, the messed up humans that use it for their own ends, are able to claim it as speaking for them, then they are able to naturalize their assumptions in ways that are much more effective than what religion could have, because religion always pointed to the divine, which of course would butt up against other people's divines. Whereas with science, you cannot, you know, question it, lest you be called a kind of postmodern or liberal hack. Now Adorno ascribes to this group another title. He says that it represents a kind of repressive egalitarianism where it might appear because by virtue of its being a pretty egalitarian space that is people are seen as being equal among themselves that it would then be like a good thing adorno is like no 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 no, because this comes at the cost of the loss of any kind of individual autonomy or identity or you know the 
imagination, creativity, which of course are bad things. Or at least the loss of them are bad things, I mean. Now Adorno kind of closes this chapter by thinking about the way that Freud's theories provide a nice foundation, but because they don't give us enough of an understanding of the different ways that groups can manifest themselves, let's say for different political reasons, that uh, we are being com we are confronted with very different things, and it's wrong to kind of apply this this kind of blanket understanding, this abstract understanding over groups in order to understand them. And this might be a broader critique of psychology itself, which can at times really um, you know abstract the way that people engage with one another, and to make it about these kind of take evolutionary psychology, and to just say, well, because of the past, things are the way they are. Well, what past? Well, animals do it, so that's the way things are. Well, which animals do it? And it's, it doesn't really get us anywhere, and it's just a very, it's a very reductive way and very simplistic way to explain human interaction, as though I myself am not able to control so-called evolutionary urges. I just, I'm insulted that they would think that. And of course, like the last chapter, he ends this on a positive note where he says that this increase may well terminate in sudden awareness of the untruth of the spell and eventually in its collapse. Socialized hypnosis breeds within itself the forces which will do away with the spook of regression through remote control, and in the end awaken those who keep their eyes shut, though they are no longer asleep. And that propels us here into chapter 6, How to Look at Television. So he's here interested in television because he wants to try to understand if there's a possibility for television to be better and to kind of educate audience into the audiences into the nefarious and the kind of malevolent, malicious effects of television. Now, the television is special because when we think of the television, we probably think of a television set in everyone's house, probably more than one. You know, you got one in your bedroom and your living room and, and you know, your second living room and if you have money. Uh, you know, this is a very, very classist assumption I'm making, but let's say the television is pretty ubiquitous. That is, it exists almost everywhere. So that is something different. Now, he says that television is something that kind of communicates or disseminates popular culture, popular art. Now, this previously was reserved only for like, you know, books or, or, or certain plays or productions, something like that or in certain back alleys or whatever, where there was then a very clear distinction between high and low art. Now, all of this kind of comes together in the television, which because of its ubiquity, that is because of its uh, existing everywhere, it lends itself to a stronger form of kind of psychological control. And that those are kind of the stakes, and that's why he's interested in it, because, you know, there are there's a possibility that very negative messages can be conveyed through the television. So, in his regular kind of critical fashion, Adorno says that when someone watches a television show, they know exactly how it's going to end. And I talked about this in the first episode already, but, you know, we watch a rom-com and we're pretty sure we know which two people are going to end up together. We watch an action movie and we're pretty sure the hero is going to come out practically unscathed, with no emotional distress, no, you know, PTSD. They're going to be the strong, tough, blue-blooded American... Uh, as, as always, and, you know, insert example here. Now, the messages that we see or the images that we see on the television are not a kind of, it, we don't just take them in phenomenally. We don't just take them in at, at their surface level. 
We take many things in. That is because any image is layered. There are lots of things we are seeing when we watch television. Now for a, I guess, a more thorough kind of correlative of this approach, you could turn to the work of Stuart Hall in the 70s. He was writing about this kind of stuff a lot, especially with his encoder-decoder thesis. Uh, but that's just a little, you know, check that out if you want. So to the, the, in on a television screen, the hidden message, that is the kind of what I will just call a deeper layer, a layer that is not necessarily on the surface, for him reinforces conventionally rigid and pseudo-realistic attitudes similar to the accepted ideas, more rationalistic, rationalistically uh, propagated by the surface message. So these kind of hidden messages serve to reinforce what is seen on the surface. And this for him presents a parallel between these kinds of television shows, these television images, and what, you know, totalitarian regimes try to do. That is beneath the surface. They try to have their image be justified, their ideas be justified, validated, naturalized, so that they aren't questioned. So what, what, what the hell is he talking about? Does he have an example? And yes, he does. He talks about a show in which a school teacher is kind of She's not laid off from her job, but she she's impoverished. She's in has this extreme amount of debt. Yet, but she's um, a very quirky person who, who who makes a lot of jokes. So what Adorno says about this is that well, we are made to think as though this person is okay with this situation because they make a lot of jokes. You know, it's very funny that they're poor. It's very funny that they live in a world where a school teacher is impoverished. And that conveys to people, that is the viewer, that um, being witty or being funny is a decent substitute for having an empty stomach. Now what that does is it makes the viewer prepared for that own fate to befall them. That is, they see that and no it becomes normal. And they're like, well, I guess if that's the world I live in, then therefore I should be prepared for that possibility. And in the face of that, I shouldn't try to question this world. I should laugh about it. I should make a joke of it. Now, this take this example here. If we were to engage with this critically, what we are presented with is not a kind of peak, a lens through which to look at the creator's subconscious, the kind of creator's intention. Because, you know, the culture industry doesn't allow for a lot of variation or kind of artistic freedom. Instead, what we are seeing here is a peek into the way that society is mapped out. So by reading this film, or this television show in this way, we learn a lot about society, not the individual behind its production, or individuals, if more than one person wrote it or worked on it or whatever. So as a consequence, Adorno says that people not only lose true insight into reality, but ultimately their very capacity for life experience. Now he says that a, a kind of a real form of art, as far as television representation goes, would be in his words, it would be more commendable to show how the life of ordinary people is affected by terror and impotence than to cope with the phony psychology of the big shots. So like stars, for example, or like biographies is another thing he talks about. So for him, and this is really indicative of kind of like Russian cinema or Soviet cinema, that was, if you watched any, if you've watched any Eisenstein or, or insert other Russian or Soviet filmmaker here, much of it really focuses on the day-to-day. -day. We see what, you know, what life is like in like factories or the working people. And so people kind of are given a space 
on the television. It's not reserved for, you know, the celebrities or the stars. And he concludes by saying that we should, as viewers, not simply be blind and passive victims. Of course, there's nothing wrong with being blind. There's ableism here, but uh, we should not be passive victims. We should recognize the ways that our television viewing affects us, how it normalizes the world we live in, in order to be more effective engagers with that, in order to be able to engage with that, with the world in a more meaningful way. And that pushes us here into chapter seven, transparencies on film. So this chapter is a critique of Walter Benjamin. Now, Walter Benjamin's text, The Work of Art in the Age of Its Mechanical Reproduction, is the kind of subject of this, which if you want to know more about I've, I've done on this channel, then you can go check it out. Uh, I think it's fairly short, or I'm lying to you. I don't remember how long it is. Um, but it's a pretty important text. Ultimately, you should just go and read it. Don't take my word on any of this stuff. But if you don't have the time for that and want to know more, you can check that out. So he opens his chapter with the following quote. He says, Children, when teasing each other in their squabbles, follow the rule into fair copycat. Or, sorry, follow the rule, no fair copycat. Their wisdom seems to be lost on all the all-too-thoroughly grown-up adults. You know, the grown-up adults that just copy, replicate one another. Now this kind of idea of reproduction is going to be the aim of um, the target of Adorno's critical gaze here where he says that in contrast to something like a novel, a film leaves little to the imagination, right? So Because we see exactly what is being represented, what is being spoken about, what is being illustrated. Uh, and therefore, it kind of drives to a, an aesthetic perfection. It's kind of the, through the aesthetic perfection, we see the loss of imagination for Adorno, just as in his words, cosmetic trade eliminates face wrinkles. So this movement towards the perfection or towards perfection gets rid of all negativity, which we must then ask how much of our, uh, how much of our kind of aesthetic sensibilities are then kind of coddled, are then molded and shaped to fit a certain uh, vision of the world, a certain kind of image of the world. And, you know, take any example, take any of the reality shows that you'd find currently on like Netflix or something, where the certain bodies that are being represented are always thin. They are always, you know, have certain kind of facial features, certain kind of, uh, you know, uh, certain kind of hair that is, does follow a very European kind of, kind of model that really confines the way that we can understand art, that we can understand beauty. So we must therefore be very skeptical about it. We must question, well, how much of what I believe to be my own opinion about something is one that is constructed. And of course, everything is always constructed. There isn't this kind of true way to look at the world. But how much of our particular construction is motivated by very deliberate and oppressive uh, frameworks or kind of centers of, of power? So television, film, pretty popular. A lot of people go to see movies. A lot of people watch TV. A lot of people watch the same things. Now, between Walter Benjamin and between Theodore and, and Theodore Adorno, they, they vary very drastically on this point. Walter Benjamin says, sure, we are in the kind of throes of a, of, a, of a total collapse, right? We are on the brink of something awful. But at least we can do something like watch television together. 
where we can get some sense of enjoyment from television, from it, one of his examples is Mickey Mouse. Whereas Adorno's like, no, what that does is it just maintains the force of oppression by, you know, numbing our minds. So one of the problems is kind of imminent, that is, it, it is found within film itself. And that is because of what I've already said. It's gravitation towards a kind of aesthetic perfection that leaves very little room for something like imagination. So unless film is actually able to attain a value of itself, uh, to attain some kind of value that is separate from its technological capacities, then it is doomed. Then it, then it won't ever be a kind of real form of art. And I use that in, you know, air quotes, real form of art. Um, whereas for Benamine, he thinks about things like uh, s slow motion or close up or um, montage as being ways in which the, the capacity for creativity is extended beyond the confines of the human itself, where when we are able to slow things down, we are able to have a new purchase of the world. We can, we can lay claim to something new in the world as far as the aesthetic image goes. So this is just kind of um, elucidating on the tension between these two thinkers a little more. So in that way, film for Adorno shouldn't be read as simply like lowbrow art. It is instead, in his words, the projection of the will of those in control onto their victims. So it, it doesn't even fall within that realm of kind of low or highbrow art. Very much like in the first uh, half when we talked about the way that taste doesn't really exist anymore. We can't really say that this distinction exists anymore because for Adorno, and he's kind of, he's kind of like a conspiracy theorist about this. He's like, no, there are real actors behind this. There are real um, kind of conspirators that are trying to keep people in a state of docility so that they can keep making their money. Now, these conspirators aren't individual people. They're, you know, the broad, uh, you know, abstract people called corporations like Apple and Amazon and anything like that, that have a kind of vested interest in people remaining the way they are. And that here pushes us into chapter eight, free time. So he starts out this chapter by saying that free time is a new phenomenon, whereas historically, the idea that we often ascribe to free time, that is leisure, was reserved for a specific class of people. Now, for someone that really writes about that, uh, and whose book I haven't done on here yet, uh, is, is Thorstein Veblen. And he has a pretty important text in this field called uh, The Theory of the Leisure Class, written at the turn of the, the 19th century, I think around 1899, I think it was written. Uh, the t into the 20th century, around 1899, that is a super interesting book, kind of looking at the way that people um, kind of construct their daily lives around leisure and how it's a relic of a kind of barbarous past, a kind of remnant of barbarity. <laughs> Seems like an exaggeration, but you, you just got to read it to know. So he says that free time in relation to that is a new phenomenon. That is, free time is the thing that is open to the worker, the regular everyday bloke, not just the person that had, you know, had a, a tremendous amount of wealth. But free time isn't a state of being. It isn't like a, a, a complete, total um, way of life. It only exists in relation to its opposite, that is, work, or not free time. And so Adorno is very critical of free time. And he says... and. I cannot, every time I read this, I'm like, you're a bit arrogant, 
Adorno, you're a bit arrogant. But he's like, I don't have any hobbies. Because hobbies implies that I don't take the thing seriously. If you say you have a hobby for Adorno, it means that you just do it to pass the time. That that thing does not have any real meaning for you. And he goes so far as to say that if you have hobbies, whether it be like tourism, travel, camping, what these things do or what, what they rely upon is your engagement within the market. It, 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 you know, what you take to be your own hobbies, your own expenditures of your energy and free time turn out to just be in the service of someone else making money, which of course he's very critical of. And of course, boredom for him is another consequence where boredom for him is when people don't actually have meaningful things to do in their lives, so they find themselves without anything to do. So why, do, why does this happen? Well, he says that it kind of comes about through our socialization, where we are, any kind of imaginative or creative impulse that we might have is beaten out of us at a young age, you know, through all our institutions, through school, through church, through fucking, uh, through, through hospitals, and all of these things work to kind of make us turn us into automatons, which then, when it comes down to our kind of free time, our, you know, our freedom, that freedom is always going to then be filtered through the very easily accessible uh, kind of commodity forms that we are so used to, like tourism or camping or something like that, that demands us to engage within the market, which makes total sense to us that we're so ready to comply with. And so for him, people don't want freedom. What they want is enough entertainment in their free time to make them ready for work again. So that when they come home after work, when they're too tired to do something that is meaningful to them, they want to just watch television or sit on the computer so that they can be ready to go back to work again. Now, I will say that Adorno is very rough here. I think that a lot of people do this because they need to survive. Because uh, they need to get up in the morning again to go to work. And any chance that they can get to kind of relax, especially if, you, you know, people have kids, then they have to do these things or have to do things to them that will give them that energy to keep them going, especially if they have other people relying on them. Now, of course, he's also like critical of himself a little bit. He's like, well, I don't want to reduce all people, you know, and just talk for them as though they're like zombies. He recognizes that people have a certain propensity for freedom. That is, they want it. They just need that push to have it. They need that push to, you know, go after it. And that's one of his kind of positive tones that he ends this chapter on. And that puts us here into the final, and what I find to be a super interesting chapter titled Resignation. So he starts at this chapter by commenting on the way that he has been criticized and other people in like critical theory have been criticized for not doing enough. You know, they are armchair philosophers that just sit in their comfortable homes, think and write and act critical, yet they don't do anything. They aren't out protesting or, or um, forming movements or, or unionizing or anything like that. So this chapter is going to be him responding to that criticism. And in response, in response to these people, he says that um, one clings to action because of the impossibility of action, which is an interesting claim. Like, how can it be impossible if it's happening? And that is because for him, no action really exists without a proper kind of theoretical base, a kind of proper 
uh, critical inquiry into the reasons for its existence. And for him, any action that is done without having these kind of armchair moments, that is where someone actually sits and thinks about the world, contemplates the world, then they are doomed. Now, because then, you know, they'll just be mindless. It'll just lead to a kind of new form of oppression where people aren't thinking. And for him, real change only comes from undiminished insight. So people say of him that he, he has given over to resignation. Resignation. He, he has given up. Whereas for Adorno, he thinks that people who aren't thinking, that just give themselves over to movements, are the ones that have given up. Where they just see them giving over their, their uh, bodies, almost like laborers, just being present without being present uh, emotionally or cognitively or intellectually, are then therefore doing their job. Adorno is very critical of that. Now, what might we say of someone like Rosa Parks, who, through her actions, uh, was able to like galvanize, to kind of catalyze an entire movement? And who knows? Perhaps Rosa Parks, before you know, she refused to get up from her seat, was sitting at home, you know, like in the armchair philosopher, and was like, you know, what I need to do is this because of racism. It could very well have been that she was just working all day, was sitting there, and was fed up. And there wasn't, she didn't necessarily have that kind of undiminished insight that Adorno sets out here as a criterion for proper, uh, uh, proper change. So that's just a way to kind of question Adorno's claim here. But we do, or we should recognize the value of theory, or like theory as praxis, where theory is something that can is an important motivator for political change. And it's on that note we'll close off here, but I just want to read the last line, where he says that the happiness visible to the eye of a thinker is the happiness of mankind. The universal tendency towards suppression goes against thought as such. Such thought is happiness, even where unhappiness prevails. Thought achieves happiness in the expression of unhappiness. Whoever refuses to permit this thought to be taken from him has not resigned. Which I, I think is quite beautiful. I like Adorno as a writer. I think he's a, I think he's a really good writer. Uh, and I like, I like his prose. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thanks for listening. If I said anything you disagree with or there's something I missed that I should have mentioned, do let me know. Remember, you know, hit subscribe if you, if you want. Uh, I release videos every week. Um, and yeah, see you next time.